Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 this morning. As we continue our study in the book of Philippians, which again, is not quite a book, it's a letter. And it's not quite a letter, it's a letter from jail. And that's important to remember this morning in particular. Because it adds force to what the Apostle Paul is about to say. As I read this passage, this small passage, chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, I want you to imagine these words coming from Paul's gnarly hand while sitting in a prison with an eye glance of his prison guard. And within days or weeks, we don't know, within a trial that would decide whether he lives or dies because of his ministry in the gospel. What does he write? Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. We're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Ever since I became a pastor, I keep having the same dream. I had it just last week. I'm officiating a wedding. And everybody shows up and everything goes wrong. I don't bring my notes. In fact, I don't think I've actually prepared anything and I showed up. I don't prepare the wedding party. And so they're all looking at me. I have nothing to say to them. Everybody's filing in to come to this perfect wedding. And I'm ruining it every time. And I have variations of the same exact dream at least monthly. But as I roll out of bed and I see my own room and my own house and I start to face reality, all that anxiety, that pit in my stomach goes away, right? No, it doesn't. Because then I just transfer all that sort of anxiety that was in my sleeping thoughts to all the things that I'm worrying about in my waking thoughts. It seems like anxiety and worry invade whether I'm asleep or awake. What do I mean when I say anxiety? Well, anxiety is good fear gone bad. Fear can be good. Fear can be healthy. I ought to have a proper fear, and you ought to have a proper fear of these 70 mile per hour missiles coming your direction on I 71, also known as cars and trucks. I ought to have a healthy fear of heights when I'm climbing a rock face. 
Because healthy fear keeps us safe. Healthy fear is something that connects us to the way that, the God, that God made the world. We are in touch with reality when we have healthy fear. The counselors would say that anxiety is when we take something that is a possibility and we turn it or twist it into a probability. We take a possibility and we turn it into a probability. Uh, this is unhealthy fear. I went fly fishing in the Little Darby Creek, which can be done. It's here in Columbus. It's not really productive, but it can be done. <laughs> and I went with sandals on and I saw a snake sliding by my foot. Good fear says, respect that snake. Next time, wear boots. Unhealthy fear says, a snake's going to bite me every time I walk in water. So I'm just going to avoid open water. I'm just going to throw my fly fishing rod away. I'm done with fly fishing. as my friend put it, unhealthy fear keeps us from living in freedom and joy. That's the difference. So what do I worry about? I worry about finances. I worry about my friendships. I worry about things I can't control in ministry, which, by the way, is everything. So I worry about everything, basically. I worry about my kids. I worry about sickness. I worry about accidents. And in all of these instances, my heart can twist healthy fear into unhealthy fear. In all of these instances, possibilities become probabilities. And then that rush that you get when you're afraid just becomes slow drip all day, every day. I know I'm not alone on this. After all, this has been called the age of anxiety. And apparently this being in America is the land of anxiety. I'll read you this from a recent article. It says this, I'm quoting, according to the 2002 World Mental Health Survey, people in developing world countries such as Nigeria are up to five times less likely to show clinically significant anxiety levels than Americans. Despite having more basic life necessities to worry about. What's more, when these less anxious developing world citizens immigrate to the United States, they tend to get just as anxious as Americans. So there's something about even the air we're breathing as Americans that does not help our worry. And on top of this, in America, I've noticed we tend to stigmatize anxiety. <laughs> so we create it and then we shame it. That's just American of us, isn't it? So we don't talk about it. We, don't, we explain it away. And sadly, in the church, we give terrible advice. I see this happening in two ways. I think we can super-spiritualize it, and I think we can under-spiritualize it. What do I mean? Well, I'm afraid that sometimes we super-spiritualize clinical depression and anxiety. 
and other anxiety disorders as simply and merely a failure to trust God more. Forgetting our doctrine of a fall, which includes our bodies, which includes our brains, it's complex. But we can over-spiritualize things, can't we? And I'm just going to say that because you can really do a lot of harm by just telling somebody with, let's say, clinical depression, you're not trusting God. And if you're wondering, it is possible to obey the verse that we just heard read aloud and be on medication at the same time. Perhaps as a culture we over-medicate. But abuse of something does not eliminate proper use. So we can super-spiritualize it. We can also, frankly, under-spiritualize it. I think we can say or think in our heart that God can do nothing to help my worries and my anxiety. They're two separate rooms. My spirituality and my mental health. Two entirely separate rooms. And so we seek self-help books. We seek perhaps therapy that is completely detached from God's presence and promise. Or again, we can throw medicine at it without even reading the passage we just heard or considering it. These are two errors. So let's focus carefully on what Paul says in this passage so we don't get this wrong. Okay? Paul, who, remember, is in jail, awaiting trial, possible execution. Who, in 2 Corinthians 11.28, says he has pressure and anxiety for all the churches that he planted. Very open about his anxiety. He writes, in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. I'm laughing because I hate it when people tell me that. And he's the Apostle Paul. It's like a person telling someone to jump out a window and fly sometimes. But gratefully, the Apostle Paul doesn't just say that. In fact, He flanks this command. It's not a bare command. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. In everything, don't be anxious. He actually flanks or surrounds that statement with two promises about God's presence and about God's promises, His peace. And so we would be incorrect to simply say, don't worry. That's not what Paul does. Paul gives you a a truth bomb. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. So I would suggest to you that one of the best ways to deal with your daily worries and anxieties is to do what Paul does. Frame them or surround them with God's presence and peace. Let's look at each. Frame your anxiety with the presence of God. 
As I said, Paul does not give a bare command not to worry. He actually gives us a promise. The Lord is at hand. That's where the sentence begins. If you rewind from verse 6 to the last part of verse 5, you'll see it. The Lord is at hand. That little, that little 6 kind of divides the two, but they're connected. The Lord is at hand. He says, the Lord is at hand. That's where Paul begins. The Lord is at hand. He is near. And this phrase, the Lord is near, is everything. I think it summarizes pretty much Paul's pastoral approach to soul care. Paul is always saying to comfort the churches, one of two things. Jesus, you are in him. He's nearer than you realize. His presence is nearer than you realize by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. To everything that they worry about, he would say, you are in Christ. And then you also see him in the scriptures saying, Jesus is coming back. We're in a story that's going somewhere. Jesus is going to right the injustices that you are experiencing right now. The brokenness that you are feeling physically or emotionally. He is going to right that. He's coming to bring new creation, new bodies, all of that. And so he, his whole pastoral soul care program is encapsulated in those four English words. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. So the Lord's nearness, I think, is the best possible news for anxious hearts. Because the Lord's nearness can, can be with respect to time, as He's going to return, or with respect to space, in the sense that He is near us by the Spirit. And if those things are true, then it means something, doesn't it? I think the Lord's nearness is the best possible news for me, speaking personally, because I know, I, know, I know that only God is strong enough and near enough to answer my worries. In 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's his strength. He's sovereign. He's in control. He can handle anything. So that at the proper time, he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter integrates the the care of the Lord and the power of the Lord to deal with anxiety. Think about it. Anything but God that you would lean to or trust in, in your worries might either be, in your mind, strong enough, but it doesn't care, or caring enough, but not strong enough. And I have a feeling all false saviors that we might run to when we're worried is, in our minds, caring enough, but they certainly aren't strong enough to handle what we're worrying about. Only God, only Jesus combines both. I'm reminded of this every time um, one of my sons will wake up in the middle of the night and say they're scared, and it's tempting for me to say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, I'm here. I'm here. And I think that's a healthy thing to say. Of course it is. But Josie and I, my wife, we've been getting in the habit of saying, who is with you always? Jesus is with you always. Because what I'm doing in that instance is I'm admitting my limitation. 
I am perhaps caring enough to be with him in his anxieties, but I am not strong enough to deal with whatever he's afraid of. Only Jesus is. Both. And so what do we do with the nearness of God? I can think of a couple things rooted in this text. And the first is this. We can convert our anxious thoughts to prayers. I've often said behind the pulpit before, and I mean this, sometimes that simply means adding two words to your anxious thoughts. Lord and amen. Lord, I'm worried about the meeting that I have today. Amen. Do <coughs> you see the difference? What I would normally do is I'd wake up and I'd say, I'm worried about the meeting I have this afternoon. And I would just simply think about it in this nasty feedback loop in my own brain. When I say, Lord, I'm worried about this meeting that I have coming up. Amen. I'm converting my anxious thoughts to prayers. And that helps. That helps me. There's a reason Paul suggests us to pray. In this text. He says in everything. By prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. He says don't be anxious about anything. And then he says in everything prayer. There's a parallelism there going on. He's saying oh you're anxious about everything. Take that everything. And convert them to prayers. I had a professor who said, who's anxious all the time? And those who were brave enough to admit it raised their hand, including me. I'm anxious all the time. He's like, have you ever felt like you couldn't obey the command, pray always? Yeah. It's like, well, here's the trick. Convert your anxieties to prayers. Then you'll be praying always, right? <laughs> Amen. I mean, that is, that is some of the best advice I've ever heard. So convert your anxiety to prayers. Don't just talk to yourself about it. Talk to God about it. Number two, I think something you could do in light of the nearness of God is consider Jesus. As we convert our anxieties to prayer, Paul says to do it with thanksgiving. This little clause drives me to repentance every time. Because it suggests that all anxiety might be at root an, anxi- an accusation against God's goodness or His truth. That He's not good enough or strong enough or powerful enough or in control enough. The with thanksgiving clause might just be the thing that exposes us to the core sin behind worry. <coughs> which is... An accusation against God's goodness. And so that's why Paul says, give thanks in all things. Now what is he saying give thanks to? I don't think he's saying give thanks to your, your terrible circumstances, whatever they are. You know, after all, he says in 1 Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances. Not, hear this, for all circumstances. He says give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances. Which means everything, because what Paul is suggesting here and what he's suggesting there is not a sort of baptized silver lining thinking, which is how I tended to view this at first. 
All right, I mean, I have a lot of worries. I have a lot of worries. But what's the silver lining that I can thank God for? He's actually saying, no, be thankful always, no matter your circumstances. That's why I said, convert your, prayer, convert your anxieties to prayer and consider Jesus. Because he's the only unchanging factor. His goodness, his mercy, his promises is the only thing that does not change. And we can always give thanks for him. Even in the suffering. And so frame your anxiety with the presence of God. Grace precedes this command. Do you see it now? We don't obey this command to pray in order to get God's presence. We have God's presence. But he also flanks it with what follows after. In verse 7, we have the promise that the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. The peace of God means two things. Apparently, it's beyond our understanding. And that means it's a peace that is of a different kind than any other alternatives. It is only accessible to Christians. Because it is the peace of God. And it's better than anything you could concoct. Who has peace schemes? Do you guys have peace schemes? I have peace schemes. I have like a million peace schemes. What Paul is suggesting is that the peace of God is of a whole entire different order. Than a peace scheme. Whatever that might be for you. Uh, Anna Marie Cox. Do you know who she is? She's a political commentator. She sometimes writes. She's a podcast uh, host. Um, She is very, 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 very open about her struggle with addiction. And she didn't grow up in the church. She grew up as 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 a punk, literally a punk, like a punk rocker. And she says, uh, she met Jesus in the basement of a church at an AA meeting. That's what happened. And she says, now when I talk about being a Christian, it felt like I felt like when I was an adolescent, I told people I was a punk. Like the same kind of feelings happen. Well, anyway, as she talks very openly about her prayer life, I remember her saying one thing. She says, I have no doubt that a brain scan, two brain scans, one for someone meditating and one for someone praying, One for someone who's simply engaging in a peace scheme. And someone who's praying to the living God. She's like, I have no doubt that a brain scan might show the same areas of the brain flaring up. And that there are benefits to the peace schemes. She's like, I have no doubt that that's true. She goes, but I can tell you from experience is that the peace of God is something different. It's personal. It's from The Lord. And so, it's beyond our understanding. But secondly, and this is what's most precious to me. Yes, I use the word precious. It actively guards your mind and your heart. The peace of God. Think about this. The word that Paul uses here, guard. He uses in another epistle. In 1 Corinthians, for an actual guard, a military guard. Think of this. Paul, who is writing this in prison unjustly for following God's commands, who might actually be facing his death, 
who has a guard standing over him, says the peace of God will guard my mind and my heart. I love that image. I love that image. And as I've worked through this text and as I've been preparing for this sermon, that detail has given me more peace than anything else. The Philippian recipients of this letter knew that their city as a Roman colony was guarded from invaders by a Roman garrison of armies, men. It was a guarded city. And as I consider all the ways in which my anxious thoughts sort of try to invade the city of my mind and my heart in our city as we gather here this morning, I love to think of the peace of God actively guarding us. My son Henry, when he makes something with Legos, he has a younger brother. Let me just say he guards that thing. He has all kinds of ways to guard that thing. Before bed, he puts it somewhere high. He, he, asks, for my, he, he asks me for assurance that I will protect that thing when he's in bed. There's been too many times where his little brother just comes and... Well, I just think the same vigilance is more. The same vigilance and more is the Lord and His peace guarding your mind and heart. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to frame your anxious thoughts with God's presence and God's peace. All religions, all self-help therapies and philosophies give you technique. Do this and God will come near. Even religious Christianity says this. And in fact uses this verse. They use this verse as a technique. If you do these things. Then you will get fill in the blank. Certainly. Paul is suggesting there is a causality between our prayer and peace. He is not saying. However, that this is a technique to get peace. Because he, he flanks this command with God's presence and with God's peace. In other words, which comes first? Is it what we do? Or is it what God has already done and promises to do? And that makes all the difference, friends. First, God comes near It promises peace. Therefore, you can convert your anxieties to prayer. Not as a technique, but as a response. I think most sermons on this text emphasize human technique. We treat God like a cosmic Coke machine. If we drop the coin, we're going to get the can of peace. What you need this morning, what I need this morning, is not another technique. You need to hear that the Lord is near. Before this service, we were even praying that as this text was being preached, that you would indeed experience the peace of God guarding your mind and heart. That's what you need. And so may we be a church, a community of anxious people who respond to God's gracious presence in prayer with prayer and who notice their fears and then give them to God.
and then rest in his peace, guarding their hearts and minds in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would lodge this truth deep into our souls. As Paul will later say in this letter, whatever is true, think on this. 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 And this is true. You are near. And so we bring and cast our anxieties on you. You are strong enough to deal with them, and you are caring enough to deal with them. In the meantime, may we be a community that points each other to truth. May we be a community that points each other to help if that's what's needed. But ultimately, no matter what, may we be a community that points each other to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.